this week on Dig Me Out, Tim and Jay review Above by Mad Season. It's a nice little ditty. You're going to think I'm crazy when I say this, but it could almost be a Bob Seger song. It has a journey that it goes on, which sounds very Grateful Dead-ish, but I don't mean it like that. (laughs) Hello and welcome to another episode of Dig Me Out. I'm your host, Tim Minichi, and joining me... Once again, my co-host, Mr. Jason Ziak. Jay, we are in episode 114 of the third season of Dig Me Out. And it's my turn to make a pick. My turn. It's my turn, Jay. It's not like my two-year-old. Yes. Can I be next? No. No. (laughs) I haven't gotten there yet uh, because Nina doesn't speak. But I'm sure she will be demanding to have her turn very soon. Enjoy the 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 one the one to two year old. I think that was the most fun. After after that, it, it starts it's all to get downhill. More, well, it just starts to get a lot more complicated. Right. They get way. They've just become way too smart. She's already outsmarting you. Yeah, at two years old. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Nice. Well, with my pick, Jay, I decided to spend that cachet on uh, a one-off from the 1990s, a super group, even, if you will. We've only done one... Super group. Yes. We've done a super group before. I think the Greys were probably a super group in their own right. Yeah. And this time, we're doing the album Above by the super group Mad Season. And you were familiar with this. I was. Yeah. This is this is Mike McCready of Pearl Jam, Barrett Martin of Screaming Trees, and Lane Staley of Allison Chains, joined by a man named John Baker Saunders on bass. And they only made one album. We'll get into why. Uh, they did put out like a live, I guess, I don't know if it was a DVD back in the 90s, but they did put out a live performance on VHS. And the reason why I picked this is because uh, right around the release of this particular episode, they are re-releasing this album as a box set with that live concert. It's The album's been remastered, and there are new songs, basically songs that they had recorded back in the 90s but not finished. And since Lane Staley has passed away, they brought in Mark Lanigan of many, many good things to record the vocals. And you can actually go ahead and, and find that on our Facebook page. You can find a link to... Uh, one of the recordings that Mark Lanigan did, which was like sort of the single that they released before the, the re-release of this new stuff. So, with all that said, Jay, why don't we get into the history of the band? Why don't we? History of the band. So, Mad Season formed in 1994 in Minneapolis, Minnesota, at a rehab clinic that Mike McCready of Pearl Jam and John Baker Saunders. Uh, were both guests of. They returned to Seattle and recruited Barrett Martin of Screaming Trees to play drums. And they recorded the music together for two songs, but they didn't have any vocals at that time. So McCready asked Lane Staley of Allison Chains to add some vocals in hopes of, according to Wikipedia, uh, helping him get off drugs by being around 
sober musicians because Saunders and McCready had just left rehab and were clean and sober at this point. So before they had completed any recordings or songs, uh, McCready booked a gig in October of 1994 at the Crocodile Cafe and billed the band as the Gacy Bunch after a combination of John Wayne Gacy and the Brady Bunch. They, in January of 1995, they appeared on Pearl Jam's Self-Pollution Radio and performed two songs. McCready changed the name to Mad Season and recorded Pearl Jam's sound engineer, Brett Eliason, to record the band at Bad Animal Studio, which is owned by Anna Nancy, Nancy Wilson of Heart. They re- did two rehearsals and four shows, and then the band spent about two weeks recording their debut album, Above, which was released by Columbia Records in March of 1995. The album hit number 24 on the Billboard Top 200, and the song River of Deceit hit number two on the mainstream rock tracks. That's not the main Billboard 100 chart. It's the mainstream rock track. So I guess that's kind of, you're dialing it in there. You're, you're really yeah. drilling down the information for that particular chart. Uh, in 95, they played some shows. They released live video, which I mentioned, live at the Moor, And they recovered a, recorded a cover of John Lennon's I Don't Want to Be a Soldier for the Working Class Hero Tribute. Uh, in 96, McCready and Martin returned to their respective bands. Saunders joined the band The Walkabouts. In 97, McCready, Martin, and Saunders attempted to revive the band, but Staley's drug problems kept him away, and uh, Mark Mark Lanigan, who guested on above, he did start to record with them, and they changed the name of the band, out of respect to Staley, from Mad Season to Disinformation. Uh, Slow progress for the band in 1998, In 1999, Saunders died of a heroin overdose, and Staley in 2002, uh, April of 2002, also died of an overdose. So that pretty much put the kibosh on Mad Season doing any more recording. They played a benefit show with uh, Jeff Rouse and Rick Friel in May of 2012. And that same month, McCready said that they had 10 to 12 Mad Season songs partially done but they didn't have a singer for them. It was in July of 2012 that McCready confirmed, or Martin confirmed that Lanigan would sing on some of the new songs. And then, of course, the box set's coming out uh, with the Moore concert all this spring and uh, the songs with Lanigan. So that's it. That is everything about Mad Season and their one album. I think that's pretty much that pretty much covers it. I don't think there's anything I'm missing on, on all that. So... If well, you good. want to request a band for us to review. Me? Vi- yeah, you, Jay. Head on over to the request a review page at digmeoutpodcast.com. We did get a couple of uh, Facebook feedbacks for this particular album. Uh, David Dirty Gert Gorgos said, uh, Could there be a more 90s history of the band? Singer and bassist meet in rehab, form band, uh, one dies of an overdose, and the lead singer dies of an overdose. Yes. Not not much more 90s than that. Yeah. Jeff Haynes mentioned about the release of the re-release of Above with the DVD. Eric Peterson said, This might be the saddest story of the whole 90s, 90s scene in Seattle. Mad Season, along with Hater and Brad, 
was one of the great side project bands of the era. I guess I never really thought about it, but Brad really is like a side project band for Stone Gossard. Um, and then Steve Helton said, damn, that's a great record. You never thought of it. What do you mean? I just did. I, I The first Brad record is so in its, uh, its own entity that I didn't really think of it as being a side project. I just hmm. thought of it as being this weird one-off sort of thing and then it turned into like a real band but i don't mm. know if it really was meant to be like a side project band i don't know we'll have to talk to uh stone gossard about that he can clear that up for us so <laughs> anyway that's our facebook feedback let's get into the album jay since i brought Stay this in. to the table mm. that means you have to give us your opinion on it first so was revisiting mad season Above your expectations, <laughs> or did it fall below? Um, it was above. I, you know, I, I don't. I, I listened to this record a, uh, quite a bit when it came out. I don't know that I own the CD, so I don't know how I did that. Maybe I copied it from somebody or something. But um, I was, you know, familiar with all the material. Um, so it's always interesting uh, when we revisit albums like that. Which, which, uh, which songs kind of. St- kind of stick with you over time and you, and you recall uh, which ones you appreciate more now than you did before, which ones you don't like as much as you did that now. So uh, I went through a lot of that. Um, I think overall, you know, my first impression of it is that, you know, now that um, I'm working for the man and I can afford a little bit better audio gear, uh, a nice set of headphones and, you know, a tube amp and those sorts of things. Um, I maybe the first thing I noticed was uh this album sounds gorgeous. It, it's a mm-hmm. really, really, really great sounding record. Um it's got a um a really good sort of live room sound and it's really warm. Um and in in the first song, Wake Up, re, um that production um and that and that that uh that quality of sound really draws you in. Um it's a kind of a real quiet open um literally feels like you were sleeping and you're sort of just waking up you know and there's just this kind of quiet music building um you can notice you hear like the the bass um as the the bass amp speaker buzzing a little bit um you just hear all these little details it's really intimate um and the, the production goes a long way to pulling you into this record
I remember the um, I don't know anything. Mm-hmm. Um, was that the second single? It was the second single. River of the yeah. Sea was the first single. Yeah, I remember. I don't know anything because it, it sounds. So it sounds much like grunge. Like well, yeah, it sounds so much like Alice in Chains. I mean, yeah, it's really um, the one song on the record where uh you could probably confuse it with an Alice in Chains song. It um, sounds like it could have been off that last self-titled Alice in Chains with um uh Heaven Beside You and and that record like yeah totally sounds like but to me it if you were like if if there's a time capsule in the future and and somebody opened it up and they're like what is grunge if you played that song for them that to me that is grunge like the, that chugging guitar <laughs> Where he does yeah. that little bend at the end of the at the riff and uh, the the, even and the, the harmonics and the even yeah. the lyrics are so so nineties well, alternative. I, there's a line in there where he says, um, "When the teacher when the teacher put the ruler down on my hand, I laugh." Like, oh <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. Well, the reason I bring that song up uh, in comparison to something like "Wake Up" is that. My lasting impression of this record over the years, and I mean, I haven't listened to it probably since, you know, 97 or something, you know. My lasting impression of it was, uh, I don't know anything. That that sort of sound. I, I just, if you would have asked me before I revisited it, you know, what this album sounded like, I probably would have said, oh, it was sort of like a s- slightly less focused Alice in Chains. But going back and listening to it, and uh, you know, sort of being drawn in by "Wake Up" and then taking the journey through the rest of the record, uh, there's a lot more here than that. And uh, I think what's really interesting about it is you can tell these guys are—they sound liberated in a little bit, a little bit of sense, or they seem like um, you know, this this band is an opportunity for them just to do what they love and not necessarily. Um, maybe be confined to whatever you know their their other band's label is. So I hear a lot of um, Mike McCready really just just enjoying playing guitar. It sounds like mm-hmm. you know, and just playing long solos and, and and writing riffs that they sound like you know they could have came off Pearl Jam ten, but at the same point, you can hear like the Zeppelin influence. You know, or he'll shift to a riff that's sort of Zeppelin-esque, and he'll go into a guitar solo that's you know sort of um, Jimi Hendrix-esque. You know, he sort of visits all of the the classic rock stuff that I think um, that I loved about the early Pearl Jam stuff, but I think they kind of I feel like he kind of got squashed a little bit in that band after the first first one and a half records, and, and it, they they sort of went in this like direction of like trying to be minor threat or i i don't know what they you know all the fugazi. different fugazi yeah. and now they're trying to be bruce springsteen and you know they're wearing all these other sort of 
uh, coats or whatever analogy you want to make or metaphor, mm-hmm. but I, he's sort of been marginalized in the band since I think, I think since the, the early days. Um, so I, I don't know. When I listen to this record, I really get the sense of like, he's having a blast and he's just, you know, just really seems passionate about um, his playing. And, you know, this music seems to fit him really well. Uh, at the same time, I think this made me see Lane Staley in a whole other light too. So uh, I always think of him as sort of the, I don't know, I don't know if it's a baritone, but sort of that sort of a leap, a, a low, a lot of double vocals. like, mm-hmm. and, and his style was so ripped off and so much that it became, became hard to appreciate him. Even when you listen to the Alice in Chains stuff, because a lot of times they're either harmonizing or it's doubled or there's so much other thick guitar stuff going on, you can appreciate it. But this is a record where, you know, in a case of a song like Long Gone Day, Artificial Red, where, you know, things are quieter. Um, and you can really appreciate his the tone of his voice, his range, um, his ability for melody, which I think I was sort of alluding to earlier was that you know with Alice in Chains the melody sort of I don't know followed like a minor kind of guitar riff pattern um, sometimes almost doubled whatever the mm-hmm. guitar was doing and this band he does other things you know he does um, he vents his own melodies and goes in different directions than the music does and so it really made me appreciate him and I think it's not it, you know to me it sounded like he was um in a good place when they made this record. I mean, I'm sort of just theorizing based on the history you gave me and just sort of the lyrical content. It seems to be, I I don't know that it would be upbeat, but at least like sort of accepting of, you know, the circumstances he, he was in at that time and, you know, maybe being a little bit reflective and considering, considering things a little bit, not quite, not really angry or placing blame or anything like that. Um, so lyrically, I think it's it's pretty interesting for him as well. So I, I was I, I was drawn in by it. I enjoyed it quite a bit. Um, I'd be curious to hear uh, what you thought of it after all this time and how well it kind of stands up. It was interesting going back because I think I had the same impression of as you that this was like sort of a Alice in Chains, but a little bit experimental or a little looser, and it. Like you said, it definitely shows off a different side to Lane Staley, not just in the in the slower stuff, but if you take a song like I'm Above, mm. at like at like 210 into that song, he does this vocal riff that sounds like it could be like Chris Robinson from the Black Crows. Like he just like belts it out. It's very unlike a, any of his singing, whereas I always think of him like to me like the prototypical Lane Staley vocal is like Man in the Box or yeah. or Rooster, you know, those sorts of songs. And it's a much looser performance on that song. So that so that you're talking about the pre-chorus of that song? Yeah.
Yeah, that that reminded me so much of um, the White Stripes. I, like just in terms of it's a real like kind of raw, fast riff, pretty basic. Mm-hmm. And like you're saying, like the vocal over top is kind of a riff, you know, and it's a lot faster and than he would normally sing. Yeah, it's a really cool little piece in that in that song. And um yeah, it's it's not it's not what I remember, you know. So right, that was exactly one of, the, one of the moments that really stuck out of like, whoa, geez, I didn't remember this being on here. Um and it sounds really like relevant now. You know, it doesn't sound I expected this to sound painfully dated, but that's a mm-hmm. that's a moment where it it doesn't. It sounds very sort of contemporary and not dated at all. And I think there are, are elements where I listen to it and I go, well, that sounds like a '90s or you know an alternative riff or whatever. Um, in, in in the instance of like Lifeless Dead, mm-hmm. I was listening to that and I'm like, this almost sounds like a Mother Love Bone style riff, like Star Dog Champion or something like that. Like it has just this like groove to it that yeah, yeah. you never got in Pearl Jam with McCready's playing and, and X-Ray Mind really has you know more of that McCready able to like open up and like you said just open up his riffs and, and be a little bit like bluesier and I wonder how much of an influence uh, the bass player um, John Baker Sanders had because I believe or Saunders I believe he had played in not necessarily like alternative bands but it was like a lot of like blues and jazz and stuff and I think that, you know, McCready and, and Martin, Martin has that, we heard it when we reviewed the Dust album, he has the, you know, inkling to do some other uh, drum drumming that's not typical of, uh, you know, what we'd consider like a 90s alternative band. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's definitely like something at play here, which is just a little bit different than what you'd expect from bands of of this type i did want to bring up the ninth song on the album hotel november which is an instrumental november and hotel. uh no what did i say it's uh called november hotel you said oh hotel i wrote it november. backwards I, I i like mine better hotel november anyway uh i was gonna say that i i i, th- I think it's one of the rare occasions where a band puts an instrumental track on and it actually works as its own piece of music. Like, mm. It's a really, it's kind of a cool song. Yeah. Uh, a well, lot of it times takes, we, it, it takes you somewhere, ahead. right? Yeah, yeah. It has it has a journey that it goes on, which sounds very Grateful Deadish, but I don't mean it like that. <laughs> well, it's intense. Like, so yeah, it's, yeah. You know, it's not noodling around or has an intensity no. to it. No, none of that nonsense.
but I, I gotta say, in terms of revisiting this, the song that I was least impressed with was River of Deceit. Hmm. Um, it's a nice little ditty. I think those are some of his weaker lyrics, especially like the my cha- my pain is self-chosen, which feels like the most generic 90s lyric of all time. Well, you know what? Um, I, that's a before you got got off that point. That that was you know, anytime anybody says anything about pain, I tune out. But I thought that was I actually appreciated that because to me, the people who followed him basically ripped him off got smack and stained and all those bands they their sentiment was always basically blaming somebody else like you know their abusive dad or some girl or you know what i mean and i i felt it was interesting for him to basically be saying all the all these problems he's made that, that he that he's in and he has around him he's basically created himself and that's kind of where he's happy that's the kind of sentiment that i got out of that was considering you know where his life ended up after this which i think amplifies you know somebody saying that line if they eventually basically check out a life and spend you know whatever it was five or six years slowly killing themselves right um when they sing that lyric it means a lot more than some you know whiny dude who's upset because his dad was mean to him or whatever um, so we got picked I, on in class. Yeah. I mean, it, it's sort of hearing it now, it hit me a little harder than maybe it uh, did at the time or if somebody else had been singing it. Um, so I actually found that line kind of interesting. Well, I guess you approached it from a different angle than I and found it to be more, more meaningful to me. I what? was just, I, I heard it. I, I guess I'd heard it so many times that it had, because that song got played so much that it, to me, it was cliche back then that, yeah, you know, to have a lyric like that. And just, it took a long time for me, I don't know if you went through this too, because it was so inundated with Pearl Jam and Alice in Chains and Nirvana and Soundgarden and all those bands. There was probably a good eight or ten year stretch where I could not listen to any of that music. You know, probably from like the late 90s to the late, 2000s i pretty much avoided listening to any of those bands and it really it's not until the last couple years where i've started to go back and really give that music a second chance so i was a little hesitant before doing this album because i was like is this just going to be you know a, a typical grunge sounding record and you know more alice in chains and whatnot and it it really isn't uh, aside from I Don't Know Anything, which, like you said, could be on an Alice in Chains album. But it still sounds, even though it's very typical of, of Lane Staley and Alice in Chains, it sounds so good that you almost can put that aside. You're like, yeah, this totally sounds like a grunge song, but man, the riff sounds cool. And yep. his vocals sound, you know, energetic as well, as much as energetic as, as he can. Because he's still a little, all of his vocals, especially mid-tempo or slower, are going to be lethargic sounding. He's, but, he sounds ins- he sounds inspired on this record to me. Yeah, uh, maybe I'm just reading into it, but he sounds more inspired certainly than he did on the third Alice in Chains record. You know, that one sort of vocally, at least, 
and melodically is it's almost like them as a parody of themselves and this this is very much in a inspired place it seems to me well the third Allison James album felt much more Jerry Cantrell driven than Lane Staley it seemed like they wrote a lot of music and then had Lane Staley come in and do some vocals over a couple songs because he was too drugged out to bother you know yeah. being in the band full time I don't know if that's the truth that's just in comparing the self-titled album to Dirt and Facelift that's the impression that I have well, you know well, 20 my, years later in my my impression of that record is them trying to sound like Alice in Chains you know what I mean like mm-hmm. this is what we're supposed to sound like and we're supposed to go to these let's push it to the limit of like blowing people's minds about how you know, heavy our riffs can be and how dark and we can sound. And it's sort of like them taking Allison Chains to the nth degree. Um, and then I think at the same point at that time, it seemed like Pearl Jam was, like I said earlier, you know, to me, they were trying on different styles and kind of imitating either Neil Young or Bruce Springsteen or The Who or what, you know, Minor Threat or whatever band that, you know, uh, they were infatuated with at the time. And this sounds like a bunch of guys who got together and just played some music that they just genuinely loved and had no sense of where it was going to go or what it was going to be. And mm-hmm. I think uh, you end up with, in hindsight, now that I listen to it, you, I hear a lot of like little, uh, little tributes or just little pieces and parts that are very reminiscent of, you know, probably the stuff they grew up on and really loved. So one of the things that you, you know, you brought up River of Deceit. I think the thing I take away from that song when I listen to it now, um, you're going to think I'm crazy when I say this, but it, it, it could almost be a Bob Seger song. If you just listen to the verses, like musically, um, you know, sort of the, the sound of the, the guitars and the chords and the way that um, just the overall mood of it is, it kind of reminds me of like a '70s Bob Seger ballad, almost. Um, wow! It gets dark, obviously, in the choruses, but I don't think it's that dramatically off. Like if you took the vocal, you know, quality of Lane Staley and just ignored that for a sec, uh, you know, there's nothing going on there that's that far from from what you would hear from, uh, you know, a pretty typical classic rock song and i hear you know a bunch of zeppelin stuff throughout this this album that i never really noticed before in fact on um lifeless dead that intro part is a a 12 string sg basically like jimmy page played Mm -hmm. so so the intro part he plays on a 12 string and then when he goes to the sort of the, the more the heavy riff under the verse he switches to the six string I hear all that influence coming through on here, and it's, I, I really appreciate that. It's kind of cool. The, one thing about this record I wanted to get your point of view on was um, mm-hmm. I think it seems to be very loose and not overthought. And I'm a little bit, I struggle a little bit with the idea that if they had spent more time with these songs and really kind of refined them a little bit more and you know, shortened them up and got them a little bit sharper. Um, and didn't let them, I mean, several of them, after you get past the second chorus, you know, you sort of, you've heard the song and not much more, there's not much more to hear, but it still goes on for another, you know, three minutes or two minutes. 
uh, I can't help but think, well, if they edited these down and worked on them a little bit more, would they become even better songs or would they start to do what happens in their other bands, their primary bands where, you know, sort of the more you refine something and work on it, you start to lose that, that little bit of magic inspiration um, in terms of, uh, you know, when you first start to write a song, it just sounds, sometimes you can capture just some kind of weird chemistry as the song comes together. And then the more you play it, you start to lose that. And you, yeah, you know, the repetitiveness gets, starts to kill the the sort of yeah. loose energy because everybody finds their their part, and then they start refining down their part. Yeah. So, and do then, you think if they were were to find this, it would have been better or not as good? I think as an album, as a ten song, you know, start to finish album, it works so seamlessly, and it doesn't. It ebbs and flows. It doesn't start the way you would think it would. It starts with a, that, like you said, that song that sounds like it's literally waking up, and it's so subtle in its dynamics, and builds and you know retreats and builds and retreats and you know there's like a saxophone solo on <laughs> one of the songs. Long it's a very day. it's a yeah. and I think if I think part of the reason they were able to make this record was because of the success with other their other bands. I mean, they were able to put this out on a major label, get it onto the billboard charts. And there's really a lot of weirdness on this record. And when you think of the other like grunge supergroup from the nineties, which would be temple of the dog, that's a pretty, I mean, that's got a lot of radio songs, mm-hmm. whether they intended it or not. They're, they're just are. Mm-hmm. And this to me works magically because they only had a couple practices and a few shows to figure these songs out. And then they went in the studio and, you know, laid them down. And I don't, you know, I, I would have loved to have spoken to, you know, the guys in the band or maybe even the guy who, who produced the record. They're all sort of out of our reach. And just, you know, how much of this was even improvised on the spot. I got a feeling that some of these songs, they might've just had a skeletal, sort of approach going in maybe there's just a chord progression and some sort of melody and then they built it up from there in a, in a you know live in a room and then after a couple of takes recorded it because they feel they a lot of them just feel so of the moment and so like artificial red there's nothing on any alice in chains or pearl jam record that i can think of where mccready's playing like that like there's a uh, a real delicateness to it and even though it's not a you know it's not a fluffy song it's just sort of that song and and some of the other ones are so well they're so artificial minimal right? yeah and like they do I mean, that trade off that's a straight up blues song i mean in terms of the the foundation of that you know yeah it's but just... it's it's so minimal in the in the playing and you don't think yeah, of the yeah, minimalness yeah with Pearl Jam because it's a five piece or Alice in Chains because of the, right. the, the huge chords. And um, I love the the part when they trade the vocal and the guitar back and forth.
nothing like that on any other record that these guys have played on. Yeah, it's they stick nice to, to the, hear uh, them working in those weird little patches here and there, where they allow a little blues in or a little jazz or whatever's going on. That sounds like it would be a bad idea, but it actually works out. Yeah, it does, and they stick to the for the most part. They stick to the um, you know sort of the same format of um, you know one guitar doing the rhythm, um, you know straight up bass tone good drum sound then they'll just mix in sort of one other instrument sometimes it's like xylophone or some sort of keyboard or a lot of times it's acoustic guitar mixed with like a clean strat sound which is kind of nice but they keep it pretty simple and i think that's benefits because they're such good players it really highlights that you can kind of get into the performance either vocally, which is nice. Like I mentioned earlier, you actually get to hear him sing like and hear his voice, uh, the character, the timber and the character of his voice. And other than like that acoustic record that they did that Alison Chains did, you don't really get an opportunity very much with their music to really kind of hear his, his voice front and center by itself and not, you know, uh, synced up with another instrument or doubled or, or what have you. So the sticking to that format, I think really benefited the, this record quite a bit and, and not getting overboard with, you know, doubling all the guitars and going crazy with stuff. So I think we're both, I'm going to assume for you here, Jay, that we're both at a worthy album for this record. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I think it's a, it's a journey. It's kind of neat. I, you know, I mentioned wake up, I don't want to end it without mentioning All Alone, which is, um, it's kind of eerie. It's the last song on the record, and it's got this uh, uh, this organ in it, and I can't help but think of, you know, it kind of sounds like a funeral, or I guess if I want to take the, the metaphor far, farther, it sounds like the first song sounds like birth, and the last song sounds like death. <laughs> in ter- mm-hmm. not in terms of like aggressiveness but it just sounds like like passing there's even like the the vocal in it is kind of like a he's doing like this chanting it's almost sound like monks or something chanting you know there's not really any yeah. words in it um it's kind of an ominous way to to end the record and but it ends up you know uh, bookending the overall journey quite quite well and um i think it you know th- there's a couple songs on here that you know they're not amazing, but in the overall uh, scheme of things, I think it holds together really well as, a, as, a, as an album. And I don't think we need to go into, if you like such and such bands, you're going to like this band. It's pretty obvious from us talking about it. But here's my final question. In terms of Lane Staley, is this really the album that people should listen to if they want to get a slice of Staley? in terms of the overall range that he shows, or do you think it's still better to go with like a dirt or a facelift to get your impression of Lane Staley as a vocalist? Oh, I think this is, I mean, this is my favorite vocal performance of his on any record. Um, you know, I think Allison Chains is about him. It's about a band and it's about him and Jerry Cantrell working together. You know, so when that band's great, it's those two guys and, and Sean Kenny and, and, you know, the rest of the band, but the, particularly those two guys merging and becoming one almost between the guitar part and the, you know, the vocal stuff that they do together. And 
that's what that band is. So this is, I, I see this record as if you're really a fan of just him and you kind of want to hear him separate a little bit and sort of, you know, explore his own sound, just, but still be familiar. I mean, they're not doing anything goofy on here. Still within the same ballpark. I don't know. I think this is, this is the record to listen to. Unfortunately, there's not much. I mean, you got three, four Alice in Chains records and this. Yeah. Anything else that you can hear him on? Uh, he did that cover of uh, Another Brick in the Wall for the yeah. the uh, the Faculty soundtrack. Which right. I just recently watched the Faculty, and that cover might be the best thing about it. So. <laughs> So I'm think? with you. I, I think that in terms of getting Lane Staley's, you know, variety and showing off his what he's capable of, this is definitely the best the best showcase for his vocal. He's able to play be... in so many different colors with his vocal that it's it just it really it's kind of eye opening and, and you realize how Little bands like Godsmack and and those other bands that were ripping off Alice in Chains so blatantly because they named their band after an Alice in Chains song, they were basically snipping one tiny little bit of what Alice in Chains and what Lane Staley did as a vocalist and copying that. But there's no way that they could do songs like Wake Up and 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 uh, All Alone and you know the, the stuff that's much more introspective and and much simpler and more restrained they were they keyed in on the songs like wood and them bones and you know yeah. totally ignored the the range that Lane Staley had as a as a vocalist so you know it it made me you know think or wish you know he was still around because and it's easy to to kind of hear Allison Chains and think for the most part, it's like I think that band did everything they that they needed to do. You know, I don't, I don't know. When I listen to their music, I'm not like, wow, if they were still together, you know. And well, I guess they are technically still together. But um, if he was still alive, they were still making music. What would it be like? They'd be, you know, going in this direction or that direction. I kind of feel like it put, it ran its course and they made the music they were supposed to make together. Whereas when I hear this record, it opens up a whole new spectrum that I didn't even know he was capable of. It mm-hmm. makes you start to really wonder, you know, had he been had he gotten his life together and been able to make more music, what other things he could have done that would have really surprised people and you know broadened his audience, I guess. Yeah, agreed. So that is our review, our our revisit of Mad Season's album Above. Uh, if you like what you heard on this particular episode. Head on over to our iTunes page and leave us some positive feedback. We would greatly appreciate it. And uh, don't forget, if you'd like to request an album for us for to review, hit our request review page at digmeoutpodcast.com. And uh, that's it. We're out. For Jay, I am Tim, your Dig Me Out hosts. And uh, we'll be back next week with another episode of Dig Me Out. Join the conversation about this episode at digmeoutpodcast.com 
where you can find links to our Facebook page and Twitter feed, as well as links to our request a review and merchandise pages. Now, the one thing I. Yeah. Sorry, the cat is running around like a fucking madman, jumping on top of the table. <laughs> Just. Why not? Why not? Exactly. <laughs>